we are trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to be um, a healthy church? What does it mean to be growing into more of the kind of church that Jesus must have imagined um, when he spoke of such a thing? And so for the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, an example of another church, a church from uh, back much closer to the days of Jesus himself, uh, this church that was in Corinth. And specifically, we're looking at a letter that was written by uh, one of those who had come and kind of helped found this church and was now writing back to his beloved church family uh, with some insight into various things that were going on there. And, uh, and, and, and so what we have is an example of a really messy church in Corinth. And uh, so the degree to which they're messy gives us an opportunity to identify with them because of how messy it is for any church to, to be a church. I mean, we have uh, lots of people, you know, kind of as we talked about, uh, that are ultimately part of what is a church. And so because we, we live in... Um, uh, in proximity to one another. Our, we share lives with one another. We, many of us have relationships, some of which are maybe a little superficial and others that are very, very deep, but um, varying relationships that we have with one another provide all kinds of opportunities uh, for things to get messy, never mind what each of us brings into um, the life of the church in our own individual lives, right? I mean, I, I just am going to make an assumption that everybody that walked in this morning uh, has come from a life that isn't exactly perfect. Can I get one amen? All right. That's, <laughs> right? We, I mean, like, do, are we not doing that? Are we not? We're, we're coming in here, and I get that there's a degree to which we see ourselves as individuals, but as individuals who are part of a whole, um, like, we bring, we bring each of our own messes into what is already um, kind of a mess. And so what we're trying to discover is how do we navigate through that? And that's really, you know, much of what this series is all about. Today I want to talk about what, what we can learn about the nature of what it means to work for God, to be a worker for God, and, and also the nature of the work itself, right? Many of us are involved at varying degrees of living a life where there is... Um, our lives are being lived for God. And, and so, in, in essence, we're, we're doing things. You know, so we've got a team here that just left the stage that are, uh, that are going to serve in a very specific way for, uh, for several days, right? And, and the, you could cer certainly and very easily say, you know, they're, they're, going to, they're going to do something for other people. They're, they're going to do that for the sake of serving other people, uh, but that even that serving other people oftentimes is motivated by a desire to serve God as well. And uh, throughout this building, like all day long, this morning, you know, people have been contributing in various ways to the lives of other people. Um, and so you've encountered some of those, you've experienced some of those, some of you are some of those. We leave this place today and we go out and we live our lives and, you know, many of us live our lives with this sense, this understanding that you know, we're not—I mean, we're not just living a life. We're we're living a life for God. We wanna we wanna be work uh, be workers for God. We wanna see that whatever it is that we're doing, and, and I hope this is the case. Like for 
for the person that is, you know, that's going to go to a job tomorrow that has like nothing to do with anything, you know, specifically spiritual, religious, or churchy, right? It's just it, they're going to their job. I, I hope that we are growing in our understanding of, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus even while I'm at that job. <laughs> and, and the way in which I work is, again, with an understanding that, um, that I, am, I am God. So anyway, uh, if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm just going to read um, five verses here where, again, uh, Paul highlights something about the nature of the person who is working for God uh, and also teaches us some things about the work itself. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9 start like this. Paul says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Now, this doesn't mean anything to you. That's probably no surprise, but Paul is the person that actually wrote this letter. Apollos is another person that's a, like a leader um, and up to this point, we've discovered that the church in particular, this church, was having some rivalries that were created uh, based on individuals' allegiance to one particular leader or another, right? And so they were actually seeing themselves more for the differences that they had based on who they were following or whatever. This might sound very strange to you, and that's, again, no surprise, but that's, that's what Paul's asking here. He's like, who is, who is Apollos? Like, who is this guy, right? Who is Paul, which is him himself? Like, who are we, right, that, that, that there's any real particular significance um, with how a person is, you know, maybe attaching themselves uh, to the ministry or following under uh, the ministry of one person or another? And then Paul talks about who these individuals are. He says, they are servants, through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord is given. So he asks the question, he answers it, describes himself and Apollos as servants. And then he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Uh, so Paul has some analogies here that he's using to, again, try to describe the nature of the person who works for God and the nature of the work. So let's talk about that first of all. Um, like, you know, what is Paul's understanding regarding people that work for God? Now he's using himself as kind of a leader in the church. Uh, Apollos is another leader in the church to help the church better understand the nature of God's workers. And so what we're going to discover is that what Paul says is true of him and Apollos and others like them, it's also true for each of us. You know, whether we're a person that, that has a more prominent role uh, in a church, you know, like, you know, in Paul's case, he's this missionary, this church planter, a person who's seen as having a very high degree of authority, Apollos, uh, similar to that. You know, so whether you're talking about a pastor, a missionary, or, you know, whatever, uh, every person whose life is set to working for God, the same can be said of them, and that is this, that God's workers belong to God. God's workers belong to God. Think about how Paul describes who he is and who Apollos is. 
He says, they are, we are servants. That's the word he uses. That's the analogy. We're servants of God. And like I said, this is true not just of Paul and Apollos, but it's true of every single one of us in the room this morning. Now, here's the problem. The idea behind what Paul means when he describes himself as servant is it's actually pretty radical language for the people that were reading his letter that's kind of lost on us. Um, it's lost on us because we just don't have the same perception of servants and servanthood as people would have had back in Paul's days. In Paul's day, servants were nobodies. In fact, they were worse than nobodies. Um, servants, were, servants were these people that they were all around. Uh, and while on the one hand, they had the appearance and the function of you know, a full human being, because that is in fact what they were, within the culture, they were understood as having very little worth. In other words, servants were seen as something very, very much less than people who were non-servants. There's a massive cultural disparity between the worth that would have been given to a a householder, a person who, say, owned a home and operated a business and things like that, and then the servants that served such a person. Right? That that there was actually different levels of worth and dignity assigned to each of these different kinds of people. A servant back in Paul's day didn't get invited to parties. The servants tended to. They worked the parties, right? Servants had very little autonomy. I mean, they didn't just kind of go around doing whatever they want. They were, their lives were highly regulated uh, by their masters or their employers, Right? And, and their lives, I mean, you think about what it is that gets you up in the morning, right? And off to work. Uh, oftentimes it's the ambition to, um, you know, to do something, to be something, right? Many of us are in this place where we're trying to, uh, to better our lives or the lives of, you know, people that we love, you know, whatever. I mean, this wasn't the case for a servant, right? A servant's life was not about improving their lot, it wasn't about even, uh, preeminently taking care of their own families, but being a servant meant was serving the person who was master or lord over you. They weren't getting up in the morning to improve their position, but rather they were getting up in the morning to make life more comfortable for other people. And this is the person Paul describes, the person who works for God must be like servants. You see, today we have a whole different idea of servanthood, right? We've, we've sort of, uh, we've glorified things like servanthood, right? We understand that, that being a servant is quite a virtuous thing. Uh, I did a Google search uh, on servant. I just like typed in the word servant and looked at the images and the first several rows were about some Apple TV series called The Servant. Um, but then after that, everything related to servant, like there was nothing or very, very little that was, that was bringing out the idea of what it meant to be a servant, to be uh, counted among the lowliest of people, the, the dregs of society, if you will. It was, it was, there were themes like the virtue of servanthood, uh, of faithfulness, of how a servant is, you know, faithful, uh, 
of servant leadership. How many of you heard of servant leadership, right? If you have any kind of leadership position, I mean, like every business guru is going to encourage you to lead as a servant, right? Like that's the idea. Don't, don't lord over people. That's kind of looked down upon today. No, no, you need to be a servant to all. Um, the heart of a servant, right? These are the kinds of images that, um, that, that Google was presenting as, well, this must be what you have in mind when you're thinking of a servant. And boy, what a disparity between like what we have come to understand servanthood to be and what Paul understood it back in his day. We call the president of the United States of America a civil servant. We call um, representatives and senators civil servants um, because we all understand how wonderful and beautiful it is to be known as a person who is a servant. The problem is we are all together oftentimes too unwilling to actually serve. So I wrote a little poem. <coughs> Want to hear my poem? Thank you. Um, this is a poem by Joshua Parison. <laughs> a servant we all are happy to be, but serve we little are happy to do. I'm not feeling it. Q, I'm not feeling it, man. I know. I Listen, I wanted it to rhyme too. Um, you see, we want to be known for serving others, right? Like, who doesn't? Do we not want to come to the end of, the, of our lives being known for how well we served other people? The question is whether or not we're actually compelled to and executing what it means to be a servant. Um, I wrote another poem, right? None of us wants this for an epitaph, right, when we die. None of us wants this engraved on our gravestone. Here lies Joshua P., a taxing old tyrant to others was he. Right? None of us wants that. Paul was continuing the legacy of true servanthood that he had inherited from the culture that Jesus had established. But what Jesus taught us about being a servant and what Paul has in mind when he says, we are servants of God. It's hard. Far harder than most of us are actually willing to go with our lives. I mean, think about what Jesus taught. For one, he taught, he said, don't seek prominence or positions. Imagine that. Imagine if we lived in a world where people were not fighting for and vying for positions. Like, here we go, right? Entering into another election cycle. Get ready for the commercials, right? Of one candidate hating on some other candidate for some particular reason or another. What if all of our candidates, instead of dying for position, were actually dying to not get a position? Can you imagine if we as a society, like we picked two or three people that we thought would be really, really great leaders, and we put them on the ballot. And then those two or three people, what they had to do was, because they didn't want to leave their present job or circumstances or whatever, the last thing they wanted to do was hold office. And so they actually had to make a bunch of commercials talking about how good the other candidate was and how you should vote for them instead. Can you imagine that? 
right? Jesus said, don't seek positions. But yet that's exactly the kind of world we live in where people are looking, right? They're looking for prominence. They're looking for the accolades. They're looking for power. Jesus said, put yourself last. You know, when Jesus held a convention on how to be a servant, one of the things he would have described is that you and I, we need to put ourselves last. Jesus said, become a servant to everyone. To everyone, that means put yourself in the very lowest place. Imagine if each of us were actually trying to do that when it came to our lives. I mean, think about the people that are in the room right now. Imagine what it would be like for you to fight for the position of putting yourself dead last after everyone else who is here. That does not come naturally to us, does it? Oftentimes, that's very little what we think of. I mean, we often will pat ourselves on the back for how, um, how much of a servant we are because of the occasional gesture here or there of when we serve somebody else. I have to read a few lines from one of Jesus' speeches to his disciples. Uh, um, some of you know the story. A couple of them had been trying to reserve the top one and two spots next to Jesus when he came into his kingdom. And the other disciples found out about <coughs> They found out about it. And now the whole group was fighting. And so in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, Jesus called them over. He called his disciples together. And he said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. You know this. You see it. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them, right? You, you go out and you look at the way the world does things like power and position, and you know that when a person receives the opportunity to be a ruler, they then use that position to lord it over those that they are ruling. That is to be expected. That's exactly what we think that they do. And those who in, get high positions, they act like tyrants. But, Jesus says, it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus looks at the strain that existed within his little group because people were jockeying for position and power. And Jesus tells them that greatness is marked by serving. This is the indicator of greatness, is the degree to which a person is willing to serve other people. Now, of course, some people have taken that truth and in a desire to be great, for greatness' sake, have actually tried to leverage something like serving others in order to get there. And clearly, that's not what Jesus had in mind. Serving must grow out of a genuine love and compassion that acts in tangible ways. But it's not just about showing compassion, because showing compassion is not the same thing as having compassion. Right? They're not the same thing. Any of us can show compassion. In fact, much of the power that exists 
in our world today is derived from people that have figured out that showing compassion can be a means, it can be a way to gain and to hold on to power. It's not always necessarily being motivated by a true compassion. Compassion must come from the heart. It must begin with a desire to serve, not the other way around. Not, well, I want to be great, and so therefore I will serve as a program for me to become great or for me to be thought of as great. Like if I do it that way, I've got it all backwards. But Jesus does say that greatness is marked by serving. You think about how we gave, we give Jesus first place because he made himself a slave, right? He used himself as an example. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And think about it. Many of us here today, we worship Jesus because of that. Because he took on the role of a servant to all. He died in the place of many. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that for you and me, not there isn't like this new um, authoritarian kind of regime that comes in to add to our current overload of demands and stress, right? Like Jesus doesn't just come in as a replacement for the authoritarian kinds of structures that are already fully occupying our lives. No, Jesus comes in in a completely different and very, very surprising manner. He comes to serve us. He gives his life in our place. And in doing that, puts himself last for every single one of us. Think about this morning, like, with all that is going on in your life. How would a servant help you? Like, if you had the occasion of somebody who just kind of came up and said to you, I want to help you with whatever things are most bothering you. I, I, I want to help take those things off your plate. I want to I serve you in that way. I mean, what would, what would be those things that you would find yourself needing to be rescued from? Shana and Annie were just talking about how difficult it is to parent. I mean, maybe you're at that age where, you know, you have, Three kids that all have different sporting activities all at exactly the same time, right? So one's got to go off to soccer, but another one's got to go off to band practice, and one's, you know, got to go off to the club that they're part of, right? And like, how would we do this? I'm only one person or two people. Like, what is it that you'd be rescued from? Is it, is it a, a frenzied and frantic schedule? Is it, um, you know, some, some, some difficulty that just seems to kind of like keep you down? Like, how would a person serve you? Because what Jesus models here is that he comes into our lives as that one who serves us. In other words, Jesus spends himself for us. I mean, that is the very picture that the cross gives to us. Jesus being crucified on the cross, giving his life as a ransom for each of us, is a gripping reminder of how he spent his life for us. And so if we are truly God's 
servants, that is, we belong to God, I believe that God expects for us to spend our lives as well. I'm afraid this is just where we've, we've, we've often gone terribly wrong, right? Uh, uh, we, I mean, it's no, it's no surprise, right? It's no secret that we are largely driven by an interest in ourselves, right? Like, that's, that's pretty common, right? That is, that's, that's likely a struggle that any of us could understand and agree that, yeah, that is, that's me. That, I, I live with a very, very high degree of interest in myself. And both the culture of Jesus and the way his kingdom operates, and now what Paul is reminding us of what it means to be a servant of God means, like we've got to move past such a high level of interest in ourselves and see our lives as opportunities to be spent for others. We've bumped, and I don't mean to like put down things like, you know, personal wellness and well-being and self-care, all that stuff, right? But boy, I think like we have gone to this point where we have made idols of such things. We've made an idol of, well, you know, how healthy am I? What more can I do to contribute to my own personal health and well-being? Because, and then we excuse it. You know, I mean, after all, how can I, how can I help anybody? How can I serve anybody if I haven't first taken care of myself? You know, I think there are probably countless millions and millions of people in the world today who are experiencing extremely distressing conditions all around their lives and yet still are living lives that just emanate with love and service toward others. And they don't have the benefit of a spa day or a well-being convention, like you and I can oftentimes afford to ourselves, right? We've got to stop making an idol of the life that revolves around the self and see our lives as something that is meant to be spent on others. So that's the nature of God's servant. We belong to God. We are God's. Next, we learn that God assigns the work. Paul says, each has the role the Lord has given. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. So now Paul's using this analogy of agriculture to describe how different people contribute in different ways to some particular end. And that each person's work, although the work itself is different, right? It takes on different forms. Each contribution is essential. I mean, think about it. What use would it be planting seed if there wasn't going to be somebody else who'd come alongside and water the seed so that it might have the opportunity to actually grow into something? What use would it be for Apollos to just go around 
watering ground in which there was no seed. Right? So while the work may be different, the contribution that you might make and that you might make and that I might make, although they come in different forms, they each are essential. And they come from the, God, from the assignment that God gives to each of us because the work is God's. Paul says in verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. And in verse 9, he also says that we are God's co-workers. And so what Paul is trying to highlight here is that this, is, this work that we're talking about is a cooperative effort. It's a cooperative effort. You know, we might be tempted to highlight the unique and separate roles, right? Like, which is better, planting or watering, plowing or harvesting, right? Like, we could look at the various roles that each of the individuals play a part in and what are each individual's particular responsibilities, but Paul, he always has in mind the unity of the work. He's not looking so much at the watering or the planting or this or that. What he's looking at is the product, the, what the cooperative effort ultimately produces, and that is a harvest. And in order for that vision to ultimately be executed, each person is relied upon to do his or her job. In John's gospel, um, the last chapter, chapter 21, uh, we have this interaction between Jesus and Peter. And uh, Jesus shares with Peter what is to come. You know, the life that is ahead of him, but also tells Peter, he kind of indicates to Peter how Peter is going to ultimately give his life for this work, how Peter is going to now spend his life. And, and so uh, Peter, he, he looks back and there's another one of the disciples, presumably John, who wrote this. And Peter says to Jesus, well, what about him? And Jesus says to Peter, well, if I want for him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You come and follow me. And so each of us, we sit here with a question. What is it that God has assigned to me? Right? Because I'm not responsible for what God has assigned to you. Right? You're not responsible for what God has assigned to the other people in the room. We are, what I'm responsible for, what you're responsible for, is what is the task that God has assigned to me? And then I understand that that task is not something that I should consider to be, you know, greater in significance to the other contributive efforts of the rest of the body of the church. Because it is a cooperative Finally, the credit for the work belongs to God. The credit for the work belongs to God. The outcome of the work is credited to God, not to them. Right? Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. The, we read that in each of those things is just kind of in the past tense for us, but in the original language, the verb tenses suggest something like what I am talking about here. When Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, he uses what's called the aorist tense, which is what we might think of as a very simple kind of past tense. It describes an action that is done and completed. 
But when he says that God gave the growth, he uses a different kind of past tense, the imperfect tense, which suggests something like ongoing action. And so the picture I think that's being painted here is something to the effect of Paul saying, yeah, I planted. I made my contribution. Apollos, he watered. He made his contribution. But that, in conjunction with one another and all of the other collaborative efforts being done by those who are working for God, all of it is being undergirded by and empowered by the work of God. God's the one that's giving the growth. God's the one that's giving the increase. See, the outcome is not ultimately up to us. Some of you perhaps have experienced varying degrees of success in certain things that you have, you know, tried to do or to go after, right? And um, you, you went after some particular thing and you gave it some effort and it didn't quite work out as you had planned. Perhaps it was even utterly disappointing, right? We understand that sometimes the outcome is not ultimately up to us. There are things that are outside of our control. And certainly when it comes to the work of God, The work of God belongs to God. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. And so he and he alone is responsible for the outcome. You know what one of the last things uh, Jesus told his disciples to do? One of the very last things that Jesus said to his disciples before he left this world? We focus on go and make disciples. Right? The Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. But do you know what else is one of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before he left this world? Is he told them to stay and wait. You know that? He said, I want you to stay. Stay in the city. Stay in Jerusalem and wait. Wait for what? Wait for me. That is, there is a work that is looming on the horizon. There is a work that I am calling each of you to do, but you are not going to do it in your own strength. It is not going to be a product of your ingenuity. It's not going to come as a result of how smart you are or how talented you are, how gifted other people think that you may be, what doors you've been able to force open. The work that I am calling you into is my work, and I will be the one that is going to empower you to actually accomplish it. He said, I want you to stay and wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes into your life and empowers you for the very work that I am calling you for. And this is why the credit for the work belongs to God. The workers are Rewarded for their work, not for the outcome. That's what Paul's teaching in verse 8. And each, he says, will receive his own reward according to his own labor. In Matthew chapter 16, Paul, or Jesus is kind of talking about the final reckoning, right? Like we come to the end of it all. And Jesus said, of those who exchange a life of chasing after the goods of this world for a life of following him, of spending their lives for God and for other people. He says that he will reward each according to what he has 
done, not according to what each has produced. This is so important because I think it's so lost on us, the reality that there are such people in our world who are quietly and faithfully executing a life that is being spent for others that doesn't even make a blip on our radar in our society. I'm talking about a person whose story is never going to be told except for maybe at a memorial service where people reflect on what a difference this person made in the lives of a handful of individuals. We have a level of contempt for those who don't make a big splash when it comes to success or the outcome of their lives. And we have to be reminded that what we are rewarded for, what God is looking for from each of us is not the outcome, it's the work. It's like the opposite of a commission-based sales job. If you've ever worked in a commission-based sales job, like you get paid when you close the deal, right? It's all about the product. It's all about the outcome. You want to make a living, you better get them to sign, right? You don't get paid until the company gets paid. Jesus here and Paul set up for us something quite the opposite of that, where our reward is not derived from the results that were produced, but rather from the faithfulness that we demonstrated and the degree to which we were actually willing to spend our lives. So we belong to God, right? We are his servants. And if we are truly his servants, we will look for what it means to spend our lives others. Our assignments belong to God. Your assignment, my assignment, those belong to God as well. They are assigned to each of us. And they each on their own are indescribably important to the work that God wants to accomplish in a place like our church and in a place like our community and even in the world. And the results belong 